Good morning. Our reading this morning comes from Joshua chapter 12, verses 6 through 15. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought him word against, against as it, I'm sorry, word again as it was in my heart. But the brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness." And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if you would have a seat. I'm going to pray over the word, but I want to make a real quick point. I've actually been asked in the past, like, what do you consider the, uh, the most important thing that we do on Sunday morning? Is it, uh, is it singing? Is it uh, preaching? Uh, the truth is, is that it's really hard to divorce any of it from one another because uh, our gatherings tell a story of some kind. We encounter God, we sing to his praises, but because we encounter him, we, uh, we confess our sins, and then we sing again in assurance, and then read the word. But I want to stop there, because I really do feel like if we could put on spiritual specs, as it were, if we could see what really is happening, if we could see the power, uh, the red word of God over uh, God's people, but in the midst of the city, is mighty. I think it's the most powerful thing that we do in, um, in this room. Uh, the scriptures actually tell us not to neglect the public reading of his word. And so I want to take a moment and just prayerfully acknowledge that and ask God to bless the reading of his word. Would you bow with me? God and Father, we do see your word as mighty and powerful. We see it as important. Lord, without it, uh, we would not exist. We would uh, deteriorate and decay. We would waste away. So we ask that you would bless the public reading of your word and that you would do mighty things from it. Lord, we know that your word does not return to you void. And so we pray this morning would be no different than it always has been. Lord, allow us to see your power this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1974, a cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker received a Pulitzer Prize for his book called Denial of Death, The Denial of Death. Uh, 
Um, and ironically, uh, he received that posthumously. He had died only a couple of months uh, before. He had written this book called The Denial of Death, and then he passed away. And in this book, uh, it, he represents a striking worldview. Denial of death argued that almost every human action and inaction is taken to avoid or ignore or overcome the inevitability of death. That was the whole point of the book, was just a denial. Your entire life, Ernest Becker would have said, is a complete and total denial of death. The, the central premise here was that humans are acutely aware of their own mortality, so everything that we do is meant to deny it. It's to deny death. So if you go out and you use your life to build some great kingdom, it's because you want to, in some ways, distract yourself from the inevitable fact that, it will, uh, that you will have to leave it, that you will have to go into death. That if you uh, pick up a video game and you play it for six hours in one day, that Ultimately, Ernest Becker would say that is trying to deny, or to deny by distracting yourself from your own mortality. So this central premise is something that is, uh, is uh, distinctly unchristian, uh, just so that we can kind of get that out of the way. But it's also something that is strictly consistent with an atheistic worldview. A worldview that says that there is nothing in the life beyond, that this is all that we get, that uh, you are but a vapor for a short period of time, that your death will be nothing, mean nothing, that the cosmos will be deaf to anything that you would have accomplished, anything that this world had happened on it will be eclipsed by the inevitable expansion of our sun, the consuming of it, and uh, just complete deafness to the entire cosmos leads to this really depressing worldview. And, and, and the thing that I find most unchristian about it, to be totally honest with you, is that it is a worldview that is not as motivated by atheism as it is by fear. What, what, what Ernest Becker is really wanting you to know and understand in his book is, is that your life is one in, in entirety of fear. You see your own death, you see your own mortality, and you're trying as best you can to get away from it. Now, you may be thinking, Chris, I've never heard of such a book. This, is, uh, this must just be a fringe book that has nothing to do with our culture. Nobody really believes this. But the truth is, is that President Bill Clinton uh, listed this book singularly when he was asked, what is a book that has changed your life? It, there are entire uh, uh, realms of psychology, primarily de dealing with terror and trauma, that actually find their origin in a lot of the ideas that are contained in this book. So whether you have known it or not, our culture actually has taken on some of the ideas here, internalized them, uses them in uh, popular culture and psychology, but ultimately, it's not even just something that is a fringe thought, it's also something that is familiar to us. We see a lot of our friends, our allies, our uh, people in our workspaces dealing with fear all the time, trying to deny something about their own mortality. We may not think of it that way, but even many of us spend a lot of our time dealing with fear. 
Even if we don't deal a lot with fear, we see, certainly can see maybe a seed of some type of truth in this, uh, in this uh, presupposition that he's making. We feel the tug of the central premise. Is everything that I do truly something that is meant to deny death? There, even just that idea can be something where it's like, maybe there's some more truth there. Maybe there's something that I need to grapple with. This morning, when we take a look at the life of Caleb, I want to firmly and completely deny this worldview. I think that Caleb's life denies this worldview. I think that Caleb points to the life of Christ, which denies this worldview. And here's ultimately what I think that we'll discover here. We'll discover that wholehearted faith conquers our fortified fears. Wholehearted faith conquers, it overcomes our fortified fears. And and what I want for us to do is take a little bit of a journey here. I want us to take a look at the uh, the life of Caleb. I want to take a look at Caleb's faith. I want to take a look at Caleb's patience. And I want to take a look at Caleb's courage. So on our printout this morning, we provided a little bit of extra space. If you want to write those words down, Caleb's faith, Caleb's patience, Caleb's courage, that's ultimately the kind of road forward for us this morning. As we begin to kind of embark on this journey, we have to know something of where we come in Joshua. We have to see that Israel has come out of Egyptian slavery. They've been birthed through water into the wilderness. They were wandering there in the wilderness. And because of their unfaithfulness in God's promise, an entire generation of God's people have actually died off. Those people aren't even living. The people that came through the water, the uh, adults at that time, many, if not all of them, had died off. And now Joshua has moved them by God's promise in to take the land that he has promised them. Last week, Jeff gave us an overview of chapters 13 through 21, not a small undertaking. All of that regarded the allotment of land to the tribes of Israel. What we're doing this morning is going back into the beginning of those chapters in chapter 14, and we're going to look specifically at a man named Caleb, and we're going to look at his promised inheritance and then make some applications along the way for us today. But before we can really understand Joshua's account of Caleb, what we need to do is turn over to Numbers chapter 13, where we can get a fuller view of what has happened in the past. Because there is going to be quite a lot that is referenced in this story that we need to have some context for. Numbers chapter 13 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel, from which their tribe of their fathers shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Parna, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel. So then there's going to be this list of names, and fourth in that list is Caleb. Caleb there is uh, son of Jephna. That is not, by the way, a, uh, a Hebrew name. That is a Kenesite name, which we're going to talk a little bit about here in a minute. But what he does is he collects these 12 spies and he sends them out. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. 
and to send uh, and said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. Now the time was of the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin. And then it goes on to describe where all they go. At the end of the 40 days, that's the 40 days that these spies went in, they returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Parnan at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw that the descendants of Enk are there. They are Amalekites dwelling in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy out is the land that devours its inhabitants. And all of the people saw that we saw in it are great height. So what, what's happened here? I want for us to kind of summarize some of what has happened here. We see that there is this group of 12 men, one from every tribe. They are sent out. And from Deuteronomy 1, we even get a clearer, more concise view of all of this. In chapter 121 of Deuteronomy, it says, See, the Lord has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, do not fear. That's what the Lord told his people. Then the people said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land and bring us word. So there's a, there's a question here of obedience, okay? It's okay to maybe go in and spy those things out. In fact, Moses even said that the things seemed good to me and that I took 12 men from you, one from every tribe, and they go up and God says this, yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. What was the command? It was go up, take position, do not fear. That's what God said, but God's people disobeyed. So God says, go up, take possession. The people murmured. They said, the Lord hates us. He's giving us into our enemy's hands that we might be destroyed. And the word that is used here over and over again in reference to this says, our hearts melt with fear. Their hearts melted. 
They received this, uh, this report from the other 10 guys. So Joshua and Caleb go up with them. And Caleb's the one that comes back and gives a strong report. We can go up. We can take the cities. It is not too big for God. But the other 10 come back and say, no, we cannot go there. They will devour us. And they provide fear in the hearts of the people. And they choose to disobey. What happens from there is is that uh, God actually says nobody from this generation is going to go into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. So Caleb is one of the only people from this generation that's allowed to go in, that's allowed to see the promised land that God had given them again. And it's all because of his faith. So that's the first point this morning is Caleb's faith. I want for us to take a look at it. We see that uh, everybody in Deuteronomy chapter 1 is dying off, but Caleb, he shall see it because he has wholly followed the Lord. Joshua 14 here in the passage that we're studying this morning says this, My brothers made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholeheartedly followed the Lord. What's happened here is is that Caleb goes and uh, spies out strong warriors of danger and fortified cities of sin, and he has a decision to make. He can either go along with the rest of the crowd and say, these people are too mighty for us, or he can choose to believe God and say, let us go, let us conquer, let us take the land that God is giving us. Caleb has chosen to believe Caleb has chosen to believe, but he's pointing towards one that is going to come like Jesus and who comes into this world and spies out Satan and his fortified cities of sin and says, I believe my father. You can see this connection between Caleb who goes in and sees all of the danger, all of the giants, all of the mighty warriors, all of the fortified cities, the way that they devour their inhabitants. And he says, I am not afraid. I choose to believe the father. This is exactly what Jesus does when he comes. He comes here on this earth and he comes and he sees uh, the, the, the giants of sin. He sees Satan. He's there tempted in the wilderness. He's taken out and told by Satan, I'll give you all things. And Jesus chooses to believe the Father. Jesus is the greater Caleb. He's the one that comes out and spies things out and ultimately crushes sin. Jesus sees this. The kingdom is set before me. I have no fear. I will go up and take possession at it. But whereas Caleb is promised that he will go in, that he will see the promised land, that he will not die until his inhabitants take hold of their inheritance, Jesus is the exact opposite. He goes in to take the land, but it costs him his life so that we might have his inheritance. Caleb says, I believe the Lord. Jesus says, I believe the Father. One lives because of the faith. One dies so that we might have it. I want for us to make a quick application here because I think that it's very important. 
Caleb was sent to see the promised kingdom, but Jesus has already given it to us. I'm going to say that one more time. Caleb was sent to spy out this land that God was giving him. But for us today, if we're to ask, how do we follow? How do we understand our place with Caleb? We have to understand that we are not like Caleb looking into a promised land. We, after Jesus, are ones who have inherited the kingdom. We don't have to go anywhere. There's no promised land out there for us to go and take away from sin and fortified cities and giants. There's nothing for us to conquer. Jesus has already finished that work and he's given us a kingdom. So the question that we need to ask is, what ought we do? How can we learn from this story with Caleb? Well, what we do see in this story is that fear is what gripped God's people, what took them to a place where they were operating in unbelief. But Caleb has faith. So what do we make of our fears? How do we understand them? This week, if you uh, take the little, um, the, our, our card home that have the discipleship group questions on there, you'll go, and if your group chooses to do those questions this week, one of the, the first questions that you're going to interact with is, what are the giants in your life? What are those fortified cities that cause you to fear? What is it that you fear? I don't want for you to treat that uh, trivially. All of us, every single one of us in this room has something that we are afraid of, something that restrains us from believing in the good promises of God. So the first thing that I want for you to ask is, what are the giants in your life? What are those fort cities? For some of us, we have a giant in our life that causes us to fear, and honestly, it's a, it's a close loved one who's struggling mightily with uh, their mental health. Maybe even a few of us have a, a spouse who uh, regularly struggles with thoughts of suicide. And, and just the, the thought of that is a tyranny over our uh, lives. It's, a, it's something that we're afraid of. It's something that causes us not to believe in God's good promises to us. For others of it, maybe it's instability. You have a job that is not very sure. You see maybe a recession uh, either here or around the corner, and you know that your job is one of the first ones that is affected by, and so it just keeps you up at night. Why? Because you're anxious about it. There's fear in you. The giant is walking through your kingdom, in obscuring your view of what faithfulness looks like. Maybe for some of us, we, uh, we're afraid because we feel disapproved of. We live uh, underneath an oppression of our parents' disapproval. They've never liked uh, our spouse that we chose or the job that we went after or where we went to school or they never felt approving of really anything in our lives. And so you just march through daily life with this uh, fear of just constant disapproval from your parents. You're wondering, I wonder what they think of this and it stands in your way. It blocks out the sun. It's something that causes you to fear. For the others of us, it's not giants, but it's maybe uh, forts. It's fortified cities of sin. 
We live in the midst of a culture that uh, raises up uh, lust and sexuality and pornography. And honestly, just living in this culture where uh, every single magazine that you see, every ad that comes across your computer, it's just a, uh, it seems inevitable that you live in a land where there are these fortified cities of sin that make war against you. It's very hard to believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against uh, Jesus's church and beloved kingdom, and you just live in fear. You know that every day is another opportunity to be assailed by the culture. For others of us, it's uh, our employer. They set out expectations of us. We're having to put pronouns in our, uh, in our bylines, in our emails. There are things that we can't say at our work because we're afraid that we'll lose our job. There are expectations that they have of uh, certain noises that you have to make with your mouth, certain things that you have to at least pretend or, uh, or, or uh, purvey, that you have to say out of your... And it just... It, it, it's a fortified city. You feel like every day you're going into a job space where you are being assailed. Our nurses, like, you know, and medical workers have lived in this area where it's not too, if it's not here already, it's not too far uh, away from you that you're asked to do things that you will consider unrighteous. And so you wonder, can I even exist? Can I continue existing in this industry If I stand up and say, no, I can't provide that medicine, I can't inject that drug, I can't do this thing, I can't continue to provide what you call care and what I call death, I might lose my job. For all of us, we have giants in our land, we have fortified cities that seem too big to us, and they constantly are asking us to be afraid, even though unlike Caleb, we live in the land now. Caleb was looking into the land saying, I might go there. We live in the kingdom of God, and this is what I want for us to get out of all of this. May we look at Caleb's faith. May we look at Jesus's faith. May we see all of these things that we are living in fear of and realize that you live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ because of his wholehearted faith. So we live in faith with nothing to fear, but it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel like we've fully arrived in that kingdom. For a lot of us, we feel more aligned with Caleb looking in, feeling like the kingdom is somewhere out there. And so what we need to learn is not just Caleb's faith, but Caleb's patience. Verse 6, back in Joshua chapter 14, says this, Then the people of Judah came. So this is a tribe of Israel. They came, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenesite. Now, I want to make this uh, really particularly clear. There's two things that are said there. First of all, uh, Caleb is not a natural-born citizen of, uh, of Israel. He came in from a Gentile group. He, he was the son of Jephunneh, but he was also a part of Judah, He came from the kingly tribe. Caleb is a part of Judah, this kingly tribe of of David, but he is a Kenizzite, the son of a Kenizzite. 
He's operating in the midst of a family that has come in by faith. There's so many fun things to explore there because you just got to ask yourself, when does, this fa- when does he come into Israel? Is it during, during slavery? Is it when they're wandering in the wilderness? Like, when is it that this Gentile family decides to join Israel? Maybe they heard of the drowning of all of Pharaoh's mighty men in, uh, in the sea, and they just decided, that's the kind of God that I want to serve. But ultimately, he says this in verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me. So he actually timestamps this mission in his life. He was 40 years old. For many of us, we're not yet 40 years old. And so we can kind of put this in context of our own life. He was sent there to, quote, spy out the land And I brought him word again as was in my heart. He was not deterred. He wasn't worried about what the other 10 men thought. He brought forward what he had in his own heart by faith. And he says this of his brothers. My brothers made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord. Verse 9, Moses swore to me that day, surely the land There shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever. Verse 10 says this, Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, when? 45 years ago. Now, there's a couple of things that are happening here. Caleb has trusted, and then he has waited on God to give him an inheritance for 45 years. Now, here's the truth. A lot of times, we read stories like this, and they just become that. They're like stories to us. They're like, yeah, he was 40 years old, and then 45 years later, uh, he got what was coming to him. No, no, no. This is a man who had waited for 45 years to get what God had promised him. This is a man just like you and I where uh, he had to uh, cut his hair. He had to uh, put on his clothes. This wasn't like some figment of our imagination. It wasn't some felt board Caleb on some wall. It was a real person that had really waited for 45 years. If you're a person that has not even yet lived 45 years, he waited and waited and waited. And here he is with all the confidence in the world that God was going to give him that. More than that, just to make it more real, he was in the midst of a generation that had all died off. And so here he is, 85 years old, and he's finally getting to see God's promise being made real to him In this day, he is 85 years old. He says, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. Caleb has trusted and he has waited on God to give him an inheritance for 45 years. Many of us can't imagine waiting 45 days to receive an answer to prayer. We can't imagine waiting uh, 45 minutes for some sort of uh, thing that we're wanting. We We can't imagine this kind of patience, but Caleb is patient. Caleb has trusted. He has waited. Why? Because he knew that God always fulfills his promises. And God will always do it in a patient way. Galatians 4 says this, that he in the fullness of time sent his son that there might be redemption. That we might have redemption, Ephesians 1 says, set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time that God might unite all things. So God is doing things and he's doing things in his own timing. When is God going to get to it? In the fullness of time. It's actually a really helpful phrase. With your kids, they're like, when are we going to get there? It's like, in the fullness of time. 
That's when we're going to get there. Be patient. God the Father does exactly what he says he's going to do, and he does it exactly in his own timing. Our king is patient to reveal his kingdom, the kingdom of redemption, the kingdom of unity in the fullness of time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Because he's willing that none should perish. Did you catch that there? A lot of us are, are really impatient with God. But what, what is said right there is, is that God is patiently meeting out his plan because he's giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for you to believe his promises, to be patient, and because he is willing that none should perish. Why doesn't God just uh, send uh, Jesus today? Why isn't he just sending him in this moment to make an end of all of the sin? Because he's willing that none should perish and he's wanting for there to be opportunities for Christ, opportunities for redemption, opportunities for unity. God is a patient God and it's good news to you that he is. It's good news that he doesn't answer every one of our prayers immediately. He has a much larger, purposeful plan. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you believe that God always makes good on his promises? Or do you fear that maybe he doesn't? Are you patient for his perfect timing or are you fed up with him? Wondering when he's going to fix your spouse, when he's going to fix this thing in your child, when he's going to provide for you in a specific way. Do you believe that God always makes good on his promises in his perfect timing? Caleb waited patiently for 45 years. And, and by all appearances, the strength of his faith and the strength of his zeal did not wane. Because we see first Caleb's faith, and we see second his patience, but now we see his courage. Verse 11, I am still as strong today as I was the day that Moses sent me. What a statement. What is he saying there? Well, he could be saying, number one, that God miraculously has just sustained him in his physical state. That miraculously, Caleb is as strong these 45 years later as he was when he was 40. Now, that would be a huge miracle. And that is one way, it's maybe even the primary way that most people take this text but here's, here's what I think that Caleb is saying. I, I think that Caleb is saying that at 85 years old, that he is still strong enough to fight with God in his battles for war against the Anakim in the fortified cities. Why? Because he's strong enough to see God do what I, exactly what he said that he was going to do. He's still unwavering. That, that whether his body had deteriorated at all, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, that he has complete and total faith that God can fight his battles and win them today, even with him as an 85-year-old. But second, I feel like what Caleb is saying in verse 12, so now give me this hill country of which the Lord has spoken. I, I want for us to take that on board for just a moment. Here's what's happening. Joshua has assembled God's people. Then Judah steps forward, the whole tribe. And before Joshua can utter a word, Caleb goes, excuse me, 
I remember what God said to me. Do you remember what God said to me? Today's the day I'd like my inheritance, please. That's what he's doing. Is that courageous? Is that courageous or what? I want for us to get the picture here, to see Joshua standing there at Gilgal and this old man, 85, maybe he's still strong as a 40-year-old, but comes up and starts making demands of Joshua. I want for us to remember that a whole new generation had uh, come up, that his generation had passed away. There is not any other person other than Joshua that is even around his same age. And we might be tempted to even think about what all of these young people thought of the 85-year-old stepping forward making such demands of Joshua. It's possible that this whole new generation was dismissive. There he goes again, that crazy old Caleb just making demands of, uh, of Joshua up here, demanding his inheritance that he's always talking about. I'm, I'll bet that Moses really did give that to you, right? I'll bet God really did say that to you. So the first thing is, is that they could have been dismissive. You can also imagine that there are some people that are even disrespectful. We, as a society today, do not show honor to the elderly. We're not sure exactly what people thought of Caleb here. But they must have been waiting for what Joshua was going to do next. Was Joshua going to say, Caleb, get back in line. Get out of here. You'll, you'll get yours along with the rest of your crew. Verse 13. Joshua blessed him and he gave Hebron to Caleb. Joshua remembers Joshua was there. He was one of the spies. He remembers the word of the Lord saying, your foot touched these grounds. That's where your family will be forever. Joshua remembers and then he blesses. I wonder if we can maybe try to think a little bit about how much joy he would have had to have had on that day. He had waited for 45 years to receive this sure inheritance and we see Caleb's courage to step forward and to claim it and to know with zeal and with confidence that he was due what God had told him that he was due. Caleb knew. He knew where he was. He knew uh, what was whose. He knew that was mine. And, and I'm just reminded of Jesus the same way. Jesus knew what was whose. Jesus, on the Passover, goes in to the uh, temple, and what he sees there is that in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip. I want you to take that on board real quick. Jesus made a whip. It wasn't like a momentary outburst of anger. He sat down and he corded up a whip. Probably not for show, right? And what does he do with this whip? Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus knew what was whose. He knew that the temple was his father's and he was willing boldly, courageously to make a whip and to drive the people that did not belong in his father's house out. Caleb knew 
what was whose. Jesus knew what was whose. And I wonder today if we know what is whose. If we know that we live in the land of the living, if we know that we live in the kingdom of Christ, and if we are persistent enough along with the window to say, give me justice. Why? Because in Luke 18, it says, the son of man, will will he find faith on earth? Will he find those who believe in him, who trust in him, who are patient for him, who are courageous enough for him? Will he find us here? Beloved, we live in the kingdom of Christ. So I want to invite you this morning, take Caleb's courage, take courage in Christ. Back in the 70s, this man writes this book about the denial of death, and here's what I want to report to you this morning. Christians do not live in fear. We are not denying death. We uh, we transcend fear with Caleb-like confidence. We live in wholehearted faith in the Father, enduring with complete patience and Christ-exalting courage. That's what I want for the people of City Church this morning. May I pray it over you. Father, make us a wholehearted people. Father, we have lots of giants, lots of fortified cities that beckon and invite and ask us to distrust you. But we want to be a wholehearted people, filled with faith. Father, I I thank you so much that as I look around City Church, I see people filled with faith. I see a wholeheartedness in our people, a willingness to believe the things that you say, to put their trust in you. God and Father, would you make it all the more so? God and Father, I pray that you would also give us decades-long patience. Lord, that your people here at City Church would not uh, ask things for you, uh, from you and then forget them, but Lord, that we would have a patience to see you answer prayers. Lord, that some of us uh, would ask things of you that uh, only can really be answered in eternity. Lord, knowing that your kingdom is here now, but that it will be one day fully revealed, give us patience to see your kingdom fully revealed. Let us not lose heart. Let us not wane. Let us not get distracted. Father, I also pray that you would give us the convictional courage of Christ. Lord, that you would help us know when the moment is that we are receiving of your things, that we would be confident in it. Lord, I pray that for those of us who are in Christ, that we would not be deterred, that we would not be feared, that we wouldn't uh, run away, Lord, but that we would have complete and total courage in Christ. Father, I pray that you would fulfill these things as only you can. And Lord, we do pray with faith. We pray knowing that these things will take time. We pray courageously knowing that you want to give us all things for the glory of your Son. We pray, Lord, as more than conquerors, that you would help us to know whose we are. Father, I pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.